Now, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, Jesus is uh, teaching a crowd of people, a large crowd of people. It must have been reasonably large. Um, In addition to the disciples, a a, a crowd of maybe numbering maybe 100 individuals, there were also tax collectors and sinners. So maybe, you know, a bigger crowd than there is here today. Tax collectors, who were they? Well, they were franchisees who worked for the Romans and occupying power, collecting tax for Rome. As with anyone who collaborates with an occupying foreign power in betrayal of his own nation for the sake of financial gain, these guys weren't especially popular, as you'd expect. Sinners, well, in Jesus' day, the word sinner was a technical term for anyone who was unable to or who had given up trying to keep the law of Moses as interpreted through the customs and traditions of the rabbis. And this group would have included shepherds who didn't and couldn't keep the Sabbath. And it would have included innkeepers and prostitutes and large numbers of other people. And according to the rabbis, many of these people actually were officially beyond redemption, literally unforgivable. And there were rabbis there too in that crowd, Pharisees, teachers of the law, the conservative, Bible-believing religious experts of their day. And it was only natural for them to be there because, you see, as Jesus had traveled around, he had become incredibly famous as a religious teacher. He was widely held to be a prophet. But more than that, there was this rumor floating around, this rumor that actually he could be the long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews, who would save Israel from her sins, redeem the nation from her captivity to the Gentiles, and bring a judgment that would condemn the wicked and deliver the righteous. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are hanging out for. But Jesus is not only teaching this mixed bag crowd. He's eating with them. And actually, if you think about it, it's a lovely picture, isn't it? Sharing a meal and talking about God. Actually, there are a few things I like to do more than sharing a meal and talking about God. Wonderful. But there's a murmur of disapproval through the crowd. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus is uh, welcoming sinners. Literally, he's receiving them. It's a hospitality term. He's acting as host, and he's receiving them. Uh, He's officially welcoming them. He's eating with them. He's treating them as social equals. He's indeed treating them as intimate relations. He's forming lasting friendships with them. Uh, Ongoing associations of belongingness on the basis of having shared food with them publicly. He's forming community. Now, from our cultural perspective, it may be very easy for us to look down our noses on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and understand them basically to be bigots, prejudiced and snobbish, and to say, oh, you snobs. 
but actually, they've got a point, and it's a, it's a good point. And unless we understand the strength of their point, we're not going to fully understand Jesus' answer. And th- their, their, position, their position has some validity. So, so let's think about that. Three things. Firstly, in the Old Testament, Old Testament spirituality is full of statements about radically disconnecting from people who ignore God and break his rules. The Psalter, for example, the book of Psalms, for 3,000 years, our most beloved and holy prayer book, it begins, when we pray the Psalter, we begin with these words, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand with sinners, or sit down and keep company with mockers. But rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his law day and night. And, and the Psalms and the law and the prophets are full of just so statements and warnings, warnings against keeping company with people who ignore God and break his rules, who have no time for his word. That's, that's, that's one reason that gives strength to the Pharisees' position. The second reason is that actually the law of Moses truly has nothing to offer many of these people. Many of these people who could be lumped in under the classification of sinner, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, when somebody sinned, you needed to go through a three-stage process. Firstly, you need to repent, that is, turn back to God. Secondly, you need to renounce that sin. In other words, say, it is wrong, I'm never doing it again. And thirdly, you need to make reparation. Perhaps if you've stolen something, pay back what you stole and add a fifth to its value. As part of reparation, you also need to make the appropriate sacrifice in the temple as a witness to the priests. Now, for many sins, including adultery and breaking the Sabbath, sins that no one does by accident, there, there, were, there were no sacrifices. Uh, nothing a sinner could do to atone for his or her sin. Um, The law of Moses, that's my second point. The law of Moses has nothing to offer many in this crowd. And thirdly, this guy, Jesus, uh, as I've said, according to the rumors, he could be the Messiah. And as the Old Testament preaches clearly in so many places, the Messiah, the Christ, he comes to save the righteous and to condemn the wicked. Not to eat with them. And in, and that, in their honor-shame culture, what Jesus is doing is both very shocking and very shameful. You know, when, you, when you're hosted in a party or when you're invited, you exchange greetings of honor. Oh, come in. What a great... Uh, uh, my house is honored that you could be here. Um, oh, we're so honored that you have invited us. If you saw your son or your daughter doing what Jesus was doing on that day, you'd be furious. And you'd grab them and, and get them out of there by force if necessary before the good name and honor of your family was destroyed and your neighbors would have nothing to do with you, neither talking to you nor doing business with you. What Jesus is doing is shocking. And so they grumble amongst themselves on the basis of these three legitimate, legitimate uh, um, reasons why this is shocking. They grumble amongst themselves and says, this man 
receives, plays host to, welcomes, forms lasting community with, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And to this mixed crowd, Jesus teaches in parables. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep! I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, these parables are addressed to everyone in the audience. But as usual in Luke's gospel, there's this beautiful symmetry and gender balance. A story about a man and a story about a woman. Uh, a story uh, set in the outside. Um, a, a story set in the interior. Um, a story from the field. A story from the home. Um, these stories are twins, but they're non-identical twins. Beautiful symmetry to it. Um, the first story is about a shepherd. The second story is about a woman. And what they have in common is that in first century Palestine, neither group was considered responsible or reliable enough to be allowed to act as a witness in a court of law. <clears throat> you can't trust what shepherds have to say, and you can't trust what women have to say in first century Palestine. Now, as you may have already noticed, in Luke's gospel, the birth of Jesus, the first witnesses are shepherds. And the resurrection of Jesus at the other end of Luke's gospel, the first witnesses are women. What does it mean that Jesus is addressing Pharisees and teachers of the law as though they were shepherds? something that actually would have been distasteful to them. Is Jesus prompting them to consider themselves shepherds, as distasteful as that would seem? Well, some cultural information might help us to understand the parables. Um, last week, we looked at a similar parable from Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the searching shepherd, Matthew 18. And as you may remember, a flock of a hundred sheep is an unusually big flock. A single sheep is a valuable item. Most peasant farmers would have owned somewhere between 5 and 15 sheep. A hundred sheep suggests a community endeavor, a whole village's sheep being looked after by several shepherds. Um, one of the 100 is lost. Whose fault is it? It's the shepherd's fault. They lost it. The verb is active. Um, 
no, the shepherds have to take responsibility for this because it was their fault, and they do take responsibility. One of them, with the sun now low in the sky, heads off into the Judean badlands, into the canyons, the gullies, and the wadis, at some, at some notable personal risk, both from wolves and from bandits, as Obi-Wan Kenobi may have advised, the Judean wastelands are not to be traveled lightly. The, the shepherd searches after the lost sheep until he finds it. He's not going to give up. He searches for it until he finds it. He is steadfast and he does find it. Now, I haven't done this myself, but I understand that a lost sheep sits down, keeps still, and won't budge. It's not going to follow you. If you want it to move, then you have to pick it up and carry it. Um, and we're talking about a sheep here. I mean, there are other, you know, if you, if you Google images, you see these delightful images of Jesus carrying a lamb, and that's in response to other texts, and, and you know, that's a beautiful image, Jesus carrying a lamb, but we're not talking about a lost lamb. We're talking about a sheep. It's a big thing and smelly. This is hard work. His personal risk increases. He's now walking by himself through dangerous, dangerous country. Uh, the light is failing fast, and he's got a sheep on his back. You know, I mean, that's just like a big sign saying, eat me. <clears throat> Both hands occupied. Um, nevertheless, he doesn't grumble. No, Jesus tells us he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. The shepherd rejoices in shouldering the burden of restoration. Upon arriving, arriving back in the village, he calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him, and they do wholeheartedly rejoice because the lost sheep is a community asset. And something that is valuable to all of them has been restored to them. And not only that, they also have the shepherd back safe and sound, not something to be taken for granted. In the parable of the lost coin, the coin is literally a, a drachma, um, a Greek silver coin of roughly the equivalent value to the more usually mentioned Roman silver coin, the denarius. Both coins were worth about a day's wages to a day's laborer, and that helps us to figure out in dollar terms what that, that coin might be worth today to us. So we're looking at a few hundred dollars, something in that order. But, but you know, in the village, um, you pay for things more usually by ways of, of goods and services and bartering and so on and so forth. Um, the economy, we would probably say in our terms, is asset-rich but cash-poor. Um, the coin is worth more to her and to the village than we might at first understand. The whole village is cash poor. Her home is likely to be one, a one-room dwelling with very small windows set way up high. No glass, of course. That hasn't been invented yet. But the windows are small, so nobody can get in. Robbers can't get in. And it has dirt floors. And yes... In order to find this lost coin, she needs to light a lamp and burn some oil and burn some wick and take up a broom. Uh, she's diligent in this search. She's prepared to shoulder, indeed, some, some expense in terms of time, energy, and materials in order to find this valuable item. Valuable to her, valuable to the community. 
Um, this story is intensified. It's shorter than the last one, and it's intensified. Now 10% of the wealth is at stake rather than 1%. And the searcher is more sure of success because the area is limited, the inside of one home rather than just out there. And the search is successful. And when what has been lost to the community is restored to the community, there is community celebration, great joy and happiness. And um, we, we, thankfully, we don't have to work very hard to work out what these stories mean because Jesus tells us what they mean, which is really handy for me. Um, <clears throat> the stories we notice along the way, the stories aren't allegories. The shepherd isn't Jesus. The sheep aren't sinners. The shepherd is a shepherd and the sheep are sheep. This is not an allegory. It is an analogy. A story that invites comparison in order to create meaning. So what do these stories mean? Well, thank you, Jesus, you've told us. I tell you, says Jesus, every time a sinner repents, there is celebration and happiness amongst the angels of God in the presence of God. Indeed, so much joy and celebration and happiness that the, the joy of one sinner repenting is greater than the joy of 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. What an extraordinary thing to say. I mean, apart from anything else, Jesus is acting as a witness. He's telling us something that we couldn't possibly know. I haven't taken an elevator up there to have a look. I don't know. And he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't say, an angel told me this. He just says, I tell you. W what, have you been there? Y yeah, actually, he comes from there. Who, who is this guy that he says such things on the basis of his own authority? And what Jesus has told us, we, Jesus' audience, we've just been told how valuable human beings are to God and to his angelic heavenly community. All human beings, even the ones that ignore God and break his rules and give God the bird, so to speak. They're all loved. They're all treasured. They're all delighted in. Even me, even you, treasured, delighted in, valuable, worth searching for, worth shouldering the responsibility, responsibility for restoration and the burden and the cost indeed with joy. Joy in the burden, joy in the restoration. Now, the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, part of Jesus' audience on that day, they have been indirectly judged. There, there's a clear indirect judgment. Why aren't you rejoicing? that these sinners are coming to sit and listen as we talk about the kingdom of God. Why aren't you rejoicing? What community are you a part of? And in their telling off, there is a check for us. Are we snobs? Are we prejudiced? Have we forgotten that this one and that one, no matter how much their behavior or decisions might be different to ours or in fact even offensive to us, have we forgotten how precious this one and that one are to God and how loved and how unimaginably important they are to him? Have we forgotten that? But actually there's still more going on here. 
still more as to what's happening. Because yes, these stories are analogies. Yes, they're designed to provoke a comparison. But the question is, and it's a really important question, what are we comparing these stories to? Because Jesus didn't say, the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who dot, dot, dot. We're not comparing, we're not comparing these two stories with the kingdom of God. What are we comparing these two stories to? We're comparing them um, to a bunch of sinners having lunch with Jesus. These two stories are designed to provoke a comparison with Jesus having lunch with a bunch of sinners. That's what caused the offense. That's what needed explanation. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, in order for us to see the force of this comparison, in order to, to see really what Jesus is saying with respect to these parables, we need to understand carefully the two technical words that he's used, and they are repentance and righteousness. And we might misunderstand what Jesus has to say because out there in the world around us, in mainstream English language, repentance and righteousness are moral words. We might say to someone, you need to repent of your laziness. In other words, repentance is all about moral reform. And we might say of somebody, that guy is a righteous dude. Meaning, as far as we're concerned, he always does the right thing. We see repentance and righteousness as moral words. And if we think Jesus is using the words in that way, then what we will hear Jesus saying is, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one guy who decides to quit his immoral lifestyle than over 99 people who do the right thing and lead morally clean, upright lives. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. And it's not what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have heard him to be saying either. They didn't use those words in that way. Because repentance is turning to God. And righteousness is being God's friend. Sure, without any argument, that they do have ethical and moral dimensions to them, how we will treat others. But they are not primarily ethical, moral words. They are relational words. Jesus is saying, I tell you, that there is more joy in heaven over someone who decides that he or she wants to be God's friend than over 99 people who are already God's friend. And the statement only makes sense as an answer to the pharisaical accusation. The stories only make sense if it explains Jesus having lunch with a bunch of people. What Jesus is saying is, Jesus is having lunch with Jesus equals turning to God and being his friend. What an extraordinary thing to say. What an extraordinary thing to say. This is how Jesus sees it. To, to Jesus, to be Jesus' friend is to be a friend of God. To be received by Jesus is to be received by God. And to know Jesus is to know God. That's what Jesus is saying through these parables. If you've had lunch with me, you've been received by God. 
And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law through these parables, just who do you think I am? Jesus knows who he is. He is the good shepherd, the one who joyfully shoulders the burden for restoration of God's community, and he rejoices in that burden. And Jesus said elsewhere, a different day, a different place, but again to Pharisees and teachers of the law, he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Because he is the good shepherd, he is therefore both God with us and the Messiah. Jesus is also saying to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who do you think you are? Are you insiders or are you outsiders? Are you shepherds? If you are a shepherd, what kind of shepherd are you? A good shepherd who rejoices in the restoration of God's community or a false shepherd motivated by self-preservation? Um, these parables are so incredibly rich in meaning. Um, but they show us that being friends with Jesus is being friends with God. Um, so here's just a question for us to finish with. Where are we now? Where are we now? It's actually a very simple question. It's Difficult question, because you don't know what I mean by the question. That's why you haven't stated the obvious. Where are we now? West Leaderville, that's right. Where are we now? In Perth, where are we now? We're in church, aren't we? Um, if we're in church, then what's this? <clears throat> uh, it's not an altar. An altar is a large pile of rocks that you kill an animal on. What is this? It's a table. In fact, it's a dining table. Who's invited us to lunch? God. Um, now, in actual fact, we're not sharing Holy Communion this morning. Um, but next time we do, we can see that in a new way. Jesus is hosting lunch, and we're all invited. And to eat with Jesus is to belong to Jesus, and to eat with Jesus is to belong to God. Extraordinary. Here we are in Jesus' dining room, meeting around his dining table at his invitation. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. Let's uh, continue in prayer now. We'll, uh, we'll have an extended prayer uh, time. Uh, it'll be open um, prayer, so I'll start. And then uh, as you feel moved, um, please just, just pray from your hearts. If there are times of silence, uh, we won't worry about that too much. We'll... Um, just be confident that, uh, that we're praying in our hearts to God, and, and I'll, uh, I'll finish. So, so people, uh, oh, before we start, please, when you pray, stand and, and make your prayers um, clear 
and loud so that our amens can echo the desires of your heart. Let's pray. We humbly come to you, dear Lord, with our prayers. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. We thank you that you've promised us that, that you will hear our prayers. Uh, we thank you that you've received us sinners into your kingdom. And we ask you now, dear Lord, to grant the petition of our hearts, if it be your will, dear Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.